Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to Non-Contact Time, a podcast about all things educational. It's hosted by Hannah and Kath. I'm Kath. I'm Hannah. Welcome to the show. So what's on the agenda today, Hannah? So in data today, we're going to talk about five things to do in the summer term. It's obviously that time of year. It's very different to usual, but we're going to talk about some things that you can put in place. In teaching and learning, we're going to hear from James Pope and his organisation Heads Up in support of head teachers. In pupils causing concern, we're going to hear a funny story from James. And in any other business, we're going to talk about our Patreons, some shout outs and some upcoming episodes. So, Kath, what's happening in our data section today? Um, Very light-hearted kind of discussion today because we're just going to talk about what you could do in the summer term. We've actually started off this discussion by looking at the Teacher Toolkit five things to do in the summer term. So some of the things that they have suggested is to get outside. This I think is going to be really important this year because if you think about our students at the moment who are on computers and doing online learning, trying to get them outside and doing some learning outside is going to be really important to get fresh air, maybe reinvigorate them, maybe even give them an opportunity to put some learning into action just so they can change up their normal routines so if you were going to do something outside with your students what would you do Hannah? I've already thought of all this I would love to do the neighbours would hate us but I would love to do a samba workshop outside where we walk around the school field with all our drums and instruments attached to us and really go for it. That sounds amazing. I, can I be part of that lesson when you do it? Yeah. Could you make us some flags and we can have flags as well and be like walking <laughs> around the field marching? Because obviously Samba, whenever I teach Samba, it's all about rhythm and it's all about all being in time and students find it difficult to be in time with each other. And the best way I've found to do that is by getting them to march in time with the music. Of course. But obviously we're in a small classroom and it's really hard to, to do that. So when the weather's nice, I really would like to go out onto the field and get them to walk around in unison and then get to play their instruments on top. You can actually do that from um, a social distance as well. Yeah, I've I've really thought about it. (laughs) (laughs) I know during the summer term, I usually get the students outside drawing. So um, one of the units we do is architecture. And um, one of the tasks we get students to do is to take a really boring building and try and make it more exciting. So using kind of natural elements like Gaudi and incorporating those into the drawing. So sometimes we give them a picture of like a really horrible block of flats, you know, like one of those housing estate kind of block of flats and we tell them to like make it as exciting as possible. However, a really good way of doing it is getting them to draw our school because unfortunately the school I work in at the moment isn't the most architecturally exciting and they really engage with it and I I know every year that I get them out drawing the architecture I don't actually hear a peep from them they really get on with it and they really appreciate being outside but even getting them outside to draw flowers and plants and the natural environment or landscapes is a really good idea and I have seen um, a few teachers have done things like uh, taking a seed or a plant and giving it to their students and then getting them to grow it and photograph it and 
draw from it. And I think that's really interesting, the idea of capturing a process rather than just sitting in a classroom and drawing from pictures from the internet. I remember in school when we were in science, it made me really enjoy doing things like biology. And we'd all get a, a grid and we'd go out into the field, into the school field, and we'd put, we'd have to throw the grid and wherever it landed, we'd have to document what was in that square. So it might just be grass, you might be really unlucky and you might just have grass. But if you were really lucky, you might even get some kind of wildlife in there, some extra little flowers. And I found that really interesting. And then we'd go back into the lesson and talk about what we'd found. And it was really interesting to find that I might have been on the same field as someone else, but they've got something totally different in their quadrant, I think it's called, in their grid. Mm. And that kind of learning really suited my kind of personality when I was a when I was a student because I really like to do things and physically, you know, embed them in lots of different ways. So mm. it, it's a great time of year to really utilize all those different fun elements to learning. Yeah, in Australia, it was. I always told, tell geography teachers I work with, and in Australia, the big thing they do in the summer term is take us to the beach, and we'd look at erosion. Um, so I knew a lo- I know a lot about erosion now, but it was also an opportunity to go to the beach and actually spend some time outside. And yeah, it's it's really interesting because I remember about things like stacks and um, erosion <laughs> and how water affects the landscape from geography. But it's because we went out and actually saw it. And, physically saw it. See, Um, your your experiences were probably better than mine then, because when I was uh, doing A-levels, I did biology, and we were invited to the beach to do some, you know, biology work, and it was Formby. I don't know whether you know where Formby is, but... I've actually never been to Formby Beach. Oh, well, it's very interesting, because you can walk amongst the sand dunes, and there's literally no wind, and then you can walk out onto the beach, and it's like a hurricane. So I was walking oh in the grass and it was really serene and it was quite nice. Everyone's taking their coats off and we're all enjoying this lovely ex- educational experience. And then three steps down the beach, we were actually on the on the sand, not in, in the dunes. And I had to put all my clothes back on. I looked like I'd been dragged through a bush. My hair was <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> I was like, this is not, this is not my idea of fun. <laughs> No, that doesn't sound super fun. (laughs) So some of the other things that the Teachers Toolkit um, suggest are things like creating projects that have authentic learning tasks or something that includes active or discussion-based tasks. So authentic learning tasks are where you give a real-world context and then you get students to solve that problem. So it might be getting them to work in groups or doing things like cooperative learning or role-based Um, group work activities but I think summer terms are really good opportunity to try and get students working together in a different way to the way they normally work during term time. Have you got any um, group work activities that you like to do? I like the real world examples so summer's a great a great opportunity in music to work towards a final performance so we've done Mm. summer fairs and we've prepared all the classes just like we do at Christmas we say to them you're going to perform something and they prepare uh, either a group performance or they might do a solo performance with their instrumental teacher and we bring it all together as one big all the year groups working together and it's really nice students get to see the progress across the year groups parents get to come and watch it's a really lovely event Um, but also things like writing a song to summarize their emotions and their experiences of the school year it's a great activity to summarise what's happened in the year and it really helps students remember those projects that they did way, way back in September and maybe helps recall some of the knowledge that they learned back then. Yeah, last year I started a project where I got the kids to choose a piece that they'd done throughout the year and then I just gave them two or three weeks to make it better so that it could be exhibited and they really loved having that extra time on work to exhibit because it's that idea of someone's going to see this this is what you would do if you're an artist you would actually take the time before you exhibit something to make it better so working towards something that's got a real world context is always really positive yeah and it does consolidate all the things that they've learned throughout the year 
So number three is get creative with revision. And one of the things that we were talking about, Hannah, was uh, maybe using some of our dual coding ideas that Kelly shared with us in a previous episode, but it could be also using um, strategies like bullet journals or um, any other revision techniques. Because I think if you just give them a textbook and go revise, it's not the most exciting. So it's a really good um, chance to actually get students using a range of activities or a range of revision strategies that they might not normally use. So my two favourite activities that I do, particularly with exam groups because they're a bit smaller, the first one is Jenga and I get them all to write on a Jenga piece a question from the spec and then we play Jenga and every time you pull out a piece you've got to answer the question. That works really well. That sounds amazing. I would love that kind of <laughs> strategy. I love Jenga, so. <laughs> and then we don't have anybody who gets out. So if you if you topple the pile, it doesn't mean that you're out. But the game that tends to get all the students riled up, I, d- I don't even know where I got this from. I printed out fake money. So I've got five pound notes, 10 pound notes and 20 pound notes on green paper and students are split into groups and each group has to write five questions in 10 minutes and those five questions are to do with the exam spec and the idea of it is is if you write a question that is so difficult that the other team can't answer it you get the points and you keep five pounds if the other group answers it they get 10 pounds for answering it so the group at the end with the most money is the winner and my favorite thing about this is because students are writing the questions themselves they really dig deep into the spec and find things that even i've forgotten was there they get to be really tricksy <laughs> yeah <laughs> and the amount I love of, that. so they have a time limit to, to write the questions so some of them say in five minutes i've written five questions i was like well if you want to write some more then feel free to write more and you can use those as ammo if we have like a bonus round or anything so it, it does work really well and they really really get competitive <laughs> i think being able to answer your own questions is really important because it shows that you understand it doesn't it yeah if they ask a question that they don't know the answer to themselves it's discounted and they lose money and they have to give it to me which is i'm the bank so they have to give it to me oh i love that that's such a great game <laughs> These are great strategies, Hannah. I can't believe you've never shared these with me before. I feel, I feel insulted now. <laughs> you forget, really. don't you? You don't. You do things all the time, and you just forget how fun they are because you. Yeah, that's, I'm definitely going to try and find a way I can add Jenga to my classroom activities. So number four is to use peer assessment or self-assessment, um, and this is a great time of year to get students to reflect on their learning throughout the year. But I also use that time of year in the summer term to do pupil voice. So it's not just assessing themselves and how well they've done in the year, but also telling me what they've enjoyed. So they can point out the lessons that they've enjoyed, the activities that they've enjoyed, the ways that they like learning, um, which I actually find really helpful because sometimes you think you've taught something really well and then you read it from the student's perspective and you're like, oh, I probably didn't teach that great if they all disliked it. The other way, the other thing that I really like about pupil voice is it tells you what they really like doing. There's an activity I do in year seven where the students draw a picture of a bottle and it sounds really dull and it kind of is. (laughs) It's just learning how to use tone and work out how to draw something and then add tone to it and show reflections. Every year the students tell me that that's their favorite task. And I always think it's not actually that interesting, but they love doing it because it builds their skills really quickly and they make progress really quickly. Um, so it's it stayed in my scheme of work for a really, really long time because the students told me that they love it. And this year I was doing pupil voice with my uh, year nines. And I said to them, what did you enjoy doing? What have you enjoyed doing this year? And they wrote down the bottle I did in year seven. I went, oh my gosh, not from year seven. I want to know what you enjoyed this year. So it's a really funny one that comes up every year. So yeah, it stays on my schemes of work. But using people voice at this point of view is a really good idea. I think the other thing I like about people voice is sometimes I find something out about the student that I didn't really know. So um, sometimes they'll point out their strengths. So they might go, I've really enjoyed painting or I feel like I've gotten really good at drawing. So it helps me to do intervention more effectively in the future with them because I kind of understand what they like a little bit better so I can build that into the next year's curriculum. I think that's really important. It's like another form of assessment, isn't it? Because in subjects, I mean, we can all assess our own subject, 
but mm. if you're asking them what they prefer, what they're missing, it's another layer of, right, well, I can add this to the next scheme of learning to build up that holistic picture of that, you know, that student, that particular student, or it might be a group of students. I suppose you're the same when you look at your pupil voice and there's quite a large group of students that say one thing and you think, right, well, I'm going to address that or I'm going to look into that next time and make it more in more depth because they enjoyed it or I'm going to do more of it. Mm, I always find with art, it's... Um... I think everyone can do art and I know lots of people disagree with me on that. I think everyone can do art, it's just knowing what they're good at and I think some students are great at drawing, some are great at painting and some are great at um, sculpture but their perception plays such a massive part of how well they engage or how well or how much effort they'll put into a, a topic or a strategy or a skill or a technique because if they love doing it they're going to do more of it and then mm. they're going to do better and um, knowing that make, makes me able to balance the curriculum a bit more so if I find the students really like drawing then I'll make the curriculum a bit more drawing heavy but still have access to other techniques and materials because they need a, a wide range. Mm. Um, so our final one on our list of things to do in the summer term is get ready for the next year. It's time to reflect, it's time to think about everything and think about what the next step is. So a big part of my end of year routine is always cleaning my classroom. I don't think people realise how much cleaning art teachers do and shout out to all my art teachers out there, you know what I'm talking about. Um, but going through all the old work and going through old equipment and like getting equipment ready for the next year is such a big part of our jobs. It's huge. Um, the other thing that I do, and um, Hannah, you know I do this quite a lot, is um, past CAF is very, very kind to future CAF. <laughs> And past Kath writes lists. So before I go on the last day of school, I've written myself a list of things that I've already done so that when I come back in September, I don't think, have I done that? Because I've already told future Kath that I've done that. Um, if I'm part way through something, I'll tell myself that. But then I also do this priority checklist of things that I need to do in the next term. So these are the five things I need to do when I come in on inset day in September. So that's such a massive part of um, my job um, at the end of term. What's something you always have to do at the end of term ready for the next year? My favourite thing to do, and it's probably like when students come back in September, they love to do, is when you get a new book and you get to write your teacher name on your new book, you know, your new planner. And in my planner, I, <laughs> I'm so sad. In my planner, I write all my duties down for next year and all the calendar dates, because obviously there's so many performance dates throughout the year that music musicians are required for. So I will fill my diary with stuff like that. And I'm like you, I love a list. So I've got lots of lists of things that I will be completing over the summer or things that I need to get, make sure are done in September. But the biggest one, is always fixing equipment because I leave it to the last minute because it it takes so long for me to restring a guitar or sometimes some of the electrical parts on guitars aren't working so I've got to go into inside the guitar and fix the electrics inside there um, sometimes some of the keyboards aren't working so I've got to work out how to take the keys off and put new keys back on so all that kind of stuff I usually leave and leave and leave and leave until I absolutely need it and then all the stuff that I've left is piled up in my office. And in the last week, I'm thinking, oh, I've got to do that before September. I have to do it now. I'm not very kind to my future self. I just leave my future self lots of jobs to do. So if you've got any ideas of what we should be doing in our summer term or any additional ideas, um, get in contact with us. We'd love to hear what your end of summer routine is. Maybe you have an activity that you say for the summer term or um, something you do every year that's worked really well. We'd love to hear about it. And you can share it on our Facebook, you can share it on our Instagram, you can share it on Twitter. Gosh, there's so many places people can share it now, Hannah. Oh, and they can also, all the places. <laughs> and you can also email it to us at noncontacttime at gmail.com. In Teaching and Learning today, we're going to speak to James Pope, who belongs to the Heads Up organisation, which is part of Inspire Educate. Here's our interview with James. In five words, describe what teaching and education is to you. Oh, inspiration would have to be one of them. Um, inspiring, guiding, um, supporting, 
learning, fun. Brilliant. Fun. (laughs) Yeah, it's got to be fun. (laughs) Okay, next one. Describe the best type of student to teach. Oh, that's a good question. I I don't think, I don't think there is one. Um, I've always had, I've always got incredible joy from teaching, um, you know, those that are perceived to have, you know, difficult behaviour. You know, I I find that incredibly rewarding and also incredible fun. Uh, I suppose if I was going to make a broad statement, it would be, um, uh, you know, children who are engaged and interested. Um, which, you know, sounds sounds a bit soppy, but I think that's then part of the school's job is to help them become engaged and interested. That's part of the cultural shift. Um, you know, but yeah, any 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 child, I just, I, I, I think children are brilliant. Um, and I don't think we necessarily have created an education system that celebrates that brilliance. Um, but if we can, if we can, if we can create environments where children are engaged and interested, and we can create a culture where that happens, they're great. They're the, they're the best ones to teach. All of them, in that case. <laughs> I like that. So that's, a real cop, that's a real cop out answer. <laughs> that's the best answer. <laughs> yeah. If there was one thing you could change about the whole system of education, what would you do? What would you change? Uh, the, the, the danger that this will be controversial, not controversial. Um, <laughs> I, I would, I, I think, so much, so much of what we've experienced in the last decade has, and possibly longer than that, but I think so much of what we do and how we do it is influenced by the Ofsted framework. Um, that I, I would change that. Um, you know, very, very simplistic. I wouldn't get rid of accountability. I think that's really important. But I think we have to we have to make sure that we are really clear on those bits that the accountability framework can be black and white about and those bits which are actually far far more nuanced you know so is a school safe or not safe for me that's a fairly black or white you can you know a a regulatory system can decide whether that is the case or not off the back of the outcomes for children in a school you can make a fairly conclusive statement about the outcomes of children at that school. What you can't do is use that to then make all sorts of other statements about the quality of education going on in that school. Um, so I think, you know, I, I think we just need a, there's been a step in the right direction with the focus on the curriculum, but already, you know, we're seeing situations where, um, you know, there is a perceived curriculum of type, uh, things should be done in a certain way. Um, and I think we have to stop repeating the problems of the past uh, whereby to make to to achieve consistency in the accountability system what we do is try and iron out all of the wrinkles that exist actually that's that's not the way to do it the way to do it is to be really clear about what we can hold people to account for in a black and white way and what we can then offer guidance on about the way in which a school should do things those are two very different conversations yeah what's one thing you do after a difficult day or a challenging day to look after your mental health or unwind? Um, uh, th- this is an answer I never thought I'd give, actually, but increasingly in the last five weeks I've been doing jigsaws. Oh! Uh, <laughs> which, which, you know, I've always enjoyed a jigsaw right back into my childhoods, um, but I actually, I find it incredibly, incredibly sort of meditative. You know, you are just focused on one task, which is which is such a rare position to find ourselves in, I think, in the modern world. We're constantly mentally multitasking, you know, and I think, you know, that's that's ultimately what mindfulness is all about. It's focusing on one thing. So uh, jigsaws, uh, but when I can make the time and um, when I'm when I'm feeling um, less, slightly less lazy, um, I also like to either go for a good run or um, I've got I've got, you know, uh, elements of a CrossFit gym. Uh, so I go and throw some weights around um, <laughs> and, and do that. So that I also find that very enjoyable. That's two totally polar opposites, a jigsaw <laughs> yes. and the gym. Probably says something about mental state. Probably. <laughs> I think that says something about every teacher's a, mental state. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I agree. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, one extreme or the other. <laughs> So James, um, you're from Heads Up and it's part of Inspire Educate. Yep, so Heads Up is uh, a campaign that started 
probably last February um, was the, the beginnings of it, February 2019. Um, uh -huh. So, yeah, it's uh, Heads Up is a, a network of head teachers uh, offering support to each other uh, and also providing uh, challenge to the way head teachers are uh, treated by the education system sometimes. Uh, many of us have particular stories and uh, particular scars. Um, uh, so predominantly, it's a um, it's a, a network that offers support to each other, um, especially to head teachers who find themselves in crisis, uh, which sadly happens a lot more than we would like it to. Um, but uh, also supports head teachers into defining what they're going to do next, um, with the with the primary aim of getting people back into headship. Actually, that's what we that's what we desire. Um, but to do that, we have to challenge um, some of the narratives that exist around head teachers who are perceived to be damaged, and the ways in which they're perceived to be damaged. Um, uh, so we have to we have to challenge at a system level uh, to create the right environment for those head teachers to be valued for their skills and experiences, uh, rather than um, uh, for uh, something that may have happened to them which is beyond their control. Let's put it that way to start with. So what is your experience in education? Um, so I, I trained to be a teacher back in the 90s, uh, a science teacher, secondary science teacher, um, uh, qualified in 1998 and secured my first job. So uh, 20, 20 plus years in education, um, very quickly sort of discovered a passion for leadership, um, but also um, you know, a passion for strategic development, strategic planning. Um, so uh, had a had a whole series of leadership roles, middle leadership roles in schools, but with a very quickly sort of with an eye on school leadership. Um, I secured my headship in 2014, uh, which seems like a long time ago now, but actually isn't that long ago. Uh, September 2014, uh, it was a um, lovely school, really, you know, really fantastic school in a fantastic community, um, but had some significant um, issues to be overcome, most of which were to do with um, local area demographics and the number of children coming to the school. Uh, so I had four pretty intense years um, trying to improve the educational, uh, the education and learning for young people with a with a great team of staff. Um, but all of the time, we also had to make significant savings of money, um, and that uh, that was a, a bit of a roller coaster of a journey. Uh, it was a it was really loved it. I loved being a head teacher. Um, you know, community very supportive of what we were trying to do uh, and what, what we were actually doing. Um, but the spectre of uh, Ofsted arrived in 2017. Um, couldn't see the work that we'd done and the challenges that we were facing. We had to save, in total, I think I had to save £2.8 million in three years uh, off, the, off the school budget. Couldn't, couldn't see um, what we'd achieved within that framework. Um, and uh, put us in special measures, uh, much to the shock of the local community who'd all felt that the school was improving um, and was, was actually better uh, than it had been. Um, but uh, coincidentally, at the same time as that happening, um, uh, my school and uh, two other schools within the trust that the school was in had signed up to make a BBC Two uh, documentary called School, um, and therefore we had cameras filming the year that we were in special measures. Uh, we had cameras filming um, and captured all of the intense moments of being in special measures uh, with, the, with the upshot being that uh, I resigned at the end of that year due to the sort of all sorts of reasons actually, but you know, a desire to go and set up Inspired Educate for all of the reasons of my experience. Um, but actually, you know, also uh, if, as I am brutally honest about it when I talk about it, the impact and the toll it had taken on me and family life. Um, and, you know, an increasing feeling that due to the Ofsted outcome and the agenda that that then presented that, you know, I was having to increasingly bend and flex on my values, which I felt quite passionate about. Um, yeah, so that, so I left. Uh, the resignation was caught on camera, uh, which pleased 
pleased the production company enormously. Um, so uh, after that came all of the things that came afterwards with that um, in terms of opportunities then to support other head teachers. So Heads Up sort of grew out of my, that experience really because you know I always talk at I always talk at conferences about you know I was. I was fortunate that my experience was shared on national TV, and on the whole, um, I think people who watched it, you know, saw what we were trying to do and saw the values with which we were trying to lead the school, um, mm. and saw, saw the conflict there, um, and then my resignation. Um, but as I say, as I say at conferences, it, it's happening to hundreds of other head teachers who don't get that kind of exposure. Um, and I suppose part of Heads Up, as well as providing the specific support to individual heads who need it. Um, through coaching, um, you know that's that's the other desire of Heads Up is that we shine a spotlight on what is is actually I think sometimes described as a series of one-offs that happen to school leaders, uh, when actually it's much more systemic and it's happening across the system on a regular basis, um, and we want to shine a spotlight on it. And you know I suppose I'm the I'm the spearhead of that campaign, but you know over time we've collected. Um, uh, many sort of uh, case studies of other head teachers who've been through similar and worse, um, and, and many of those are part of the network and share their stories as part of the network as well. Um, some of them are prepared to share them openly um, at our heads up events. Some of them would rather not. Um, mm. Some of them are unable to because of the way that that particular part of the system operates. Um, and so, yeah, we're, we're helping head teachers to recover. Um, mm. Whilst also then trying to prevent the circumstances, which, which mean that head teachers find themselves increasingly in these situations. Um, yeah. So yeah, that, that's how my experience has led me to uh, where I am today. I couldn't imagine being filmed all the time because I can imagine there was such an intense scrutiny on what you did. Did you find that the television show actually represented what happened day to day, or did they edit it to make it more kind of sensationalised? Yeah, I don't. I don't think they sensationalised it particularly. I mean, you know, there is a there's clearly a process of editing that goes on. I always say, uh, you know, when I've never watched it back. Actually, I watched it in a first edit. Um, you know, but I always say to people who say that they've seen it, you know, uh, I wasn't that miserable for the whole of that year. Um, <laughs> you know, so there were there were lots of you know there were lots of happy moments and moments of joy. Um, but you know what they what they did capture is the is the sometimes completely impossible position that schools and school leaders are placed in um, for reasons that are often completely beyond their control. Yeah. You know, we, have to, you... we have to resolve the financial crisis of the school first. We actually felt that we'd improve the education and outcomes of young people during that time as well. Ofsted had a different view. Our community didn't particularly agree. Um, with with what Ofsted said, um, and but actually, what it, it ends up being a sort of chicken and egg situation. So, mm. you know, a lot of the work that we've done culturally at the school, um, you know, one of my biggest disappointments is we we'd have to change. You know, we put quite a lot of work into changing the culture of the school, um, especially the the sort of you know around the children uh, and around aspiration and wanting to achieve the best that they could. And you know, I think we we'd had some real success with that. Um, but, you know, I mean, literally sort of over the weeks following the Ofsted inspection and announcing that to the local community, I sort of watched that culture dissolve through my fingers, um, mm. you know, because it because it gets done and it becomes a self, you know, becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Ofsted have said you are this and therefore we will play to that. We will play to that narrative, um, you know, so but there, there were lots of there were lots of moments of joy. But, you know, I think the, cap, the, the cameras captured certainly some of the financial difficulty even even in that year post Ofsted you know we have to save nine hundred thousand pounds that year um, in order to be able to balance the books for the following year which we achieved mm. um, but obviously you know in terms of school improvements it, it means that the pace with which Ofsted like to see schools improving isn't always achievable at that pace um, and you know one of the things that we have that, that we argue and I think lots of others in the education system would argue is that um, Ofsted tends to operate um, regardless of context uh, mm. and actually you know we would like to see an accountability system um, which in effect you know um, has some inconsistencies in it anyway um, we'd actually like to see an accountability system which took a school's context into account yeah uh, when it is when it is passing judgments and, and 
you know, part of the issue is the very simplistic sort of four four stage framework um, does not allow inspectors or inspection teams to do that. Um, you know, and, and that's you know that's that's suppose that's part of what we're trying to challenge because many school leaders, um, many very good school leaders who are values led and ethical, and have stepped into challenging schools for you know um, very good reasons, find themselves on the receiving end of you know sometimes some unethical behaviours and yeah. at the very worst sort of mental health burnout themselves um, because of that lack of context being taken into account. That's so true. Absolutely so true. So what sort of support and guidance do you offer leaders? So we, um, we, what I call it crisis coaching. Um, so, and it, you know, it's all, it's all offered for free. Um, basically we are on the end of a phone. Um, mm-hmm. you know, our, our passionate desire is that, um, head teachers, you know, they can seek technical support from their union uh, and we're not looking to replace that. But actually, at the moment where you find yourself in a very challenging crisis situation, either to do with yourself personally or with your school, actually, quite often what you need is emotional support. Um, mm. So that that's if that's essentially what we offer. Um, you know, often it's about helping head teachers to make their next decision about what they're going to do, um, and you know, that's 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 supplied by a sort of whole group of people with different coaching experiences. Uh, within the within the heads up network, and what we're looking to do is is to grow that. Um, and you know, we're fortunate that we have very many people who are offering their time to contribute to that cause um, and to support head teachers. And I say many of them have been through similar things themselves, so that you know they're coming at it from the point of personal experience and wanting to help others to avoid that situation or to help others get through that situation as best they can. Yeah, it sounds amazing. It sounds like you're drawing on so much experience to be able to support other people when they don't know what to do. That's fantastic. Um, so how does Heads Up celebrate school leaders leaders and leadership? Um, so we, so I think the first thing we like, we, we like to do is um, uh, we like to challenge some of the narratives which define whether a school leader is a good leader or not. And quite often that is, a, that is aligned very closely to the Ofsted outcome. Um, and, you know, our view is that actually we probably have the most skillful set of school leaders that education has ever had Um, but actually what we have to do is not celebrate those school leadership skills through the very thin and narrow parameters that are offered by Ofsted and student outcomes Mm. but celebrate it more broadly so we like to we talk about celebrating school leaders you know with all of their scars and all of their bruises we like to talk about human leadership Um, you know so head teachers who are values led and ethical and lead from the heart um, mm. You know, as well as leading from the head, um, you know, we we feel really passionate about that. That actually, that's that's not celebrated in our education system, um, and it and I think that what that enables school leaders to be. We talk a lot in our network around being a compelling school leader within the frameworks within which school leadership is judged, sharing our vulnerabilities. You know, I think, um, and we're sort of very counter to this notion of superhero headship. Um, actually, you know, I think um, we would like to see a world in which head teachers can be more human uh, and mm. are less perceived as being superhuman uh, in some strange kind of way. And, and, you know, part of doing that is sharing our vulnerabilities. And that's very interesting at the moment um, because we're operating in a world where not everybody has all of the answers. And I think sometimes school leaders are expected to have all of the answers. Um, and, yeah. to, and to admit that you don't have one of the answers is to somehow give a message of vulnerability. Um, our yeah. view is that vulnerability should be celebrated. Um, so w- we take that we take that general view of celebrating headship, um, you know. But we want to we promote that through our we promote that through our events, um, which unfortunately a couple of which have had to fold this year because of because of the context. Um, but you know, our, we we very much see our heads up events into the future, our conferences as being a celebration both of individuals and their story um, and their leadership experience, uh, and then also collectively of the skills and experiences that the people in the room have. 
That's amazing. Absolutely amazing. Um, we went on the website and did a little research and we saw something about the disappeared head teachers. And we, we wanted you to kind of elaborate on that because we didn't quite understand what that meant and it might be useful for our listeners to hear what that means too. Yeah, so I think, um, unfortunately, um, I think what is sometimes perceived as something that happens rarely and as a one-off, um, what what I have discovered, you know, post the television programme, um, you know, through a series of contacts from head teachers up and down the country, um, is that actually it is happening an awful lot more than people um, uh, people may think it is or may know that it is. Um, and, and that's what we mean when we refer to the disappeared. Um, it's those it's those school leaders and those head teachers who have been working very hard, um, working with significant skill and bringing their experiences to the table and find themselves in the position where, um, you know, nobody's been telling them that they're doing a bad job. Um, they, you know, they're, they're doing quite well in terms of performance. Um, uh, performance checks with governors or with the trust board or whatever that might be however the school is organized um you know and then suddenly they find themselves being called to a meeting for a conversation um and you know sadly that is happening a lot and it's happening to mm-hmm. a lot of school leaders um so that that's what we mean by the disappeared um and you know i think i think part of that i think it's true you know all all people who work in education bring their heart and souls to it um, but I think particularly for school leaders, uh, certainly in my experience, is you um, you have a very interesting blend of the personal and the professional. You know, you lead your school professionally that becomes very, very personal about, you know, where your school has got to. Um, you know, mm. it's, it's impossible to separate those two things. And for many of those disappeared head teachers, the damage personally, the emotional damage personally, as well as perceived damage reputationally and professionally um you know the costs of that are very high um so that that's kind of what we mean by disappeared because often what happens is those head teachers disappear yeah you know they're in the school they're in the school one day they're not the next day you know there is a um there is a message put out within the local community about something that's happened to that head teacher and why they're why they're leaving and why they're moving on um and, and that's it you know, yeah. and I say there may be some technical support um, from their union. Um, we often find that for many of those head teachers, those that have a really broad network of other school leaders, um, they have a tendency to recover a bit quicker. Um, you know, but but you know, sadly, I've had conversations with heads over the course of the last eighteen months. Um, you know, who without any support are literally sat at home dealing with the the fallout of that situation um and you know we we don't want that to be the case otherwise you know we we think it's uh, one of our strap lines is we're, we're for head teachers past present and future so we support mm. those of the past and those of the past support each other to help others um we provide crisis support for head teachers who are in the present and now but actually we want the system to be better for those head teachers who might take the position in the future um, and, and the reality is, you know, if you're working in an environment where that may have happened to your head teacher, the chances are you're going to look at headship and go, not for me, thanks very much. Um, because, it, you know, the, the high stakes accountability system that we operate and what we describe as cliff edge accountability, um, you know, creates a, a here today, gone tomorrow um, style arrangement for many school leaders. And we just don't yeah. think that's acceptable. I agree. Um, that it's so great to hear that there's actually some support out there for those people who are in those positions. But I, I, and I think I would, you know, I would add to that. I think the it's the it's the narrative that's built up around who who our good leaders are, and mm. and who they aren't. So what I said earlier on, you know, around uh, you happen to be or you've worked very hard to get your school to the point at which it's secured a good judgment in Ofsted. Therefore, yeah. you are automatically therefore described as a good leader. If you happen to be working in a school which is RI or special measures um, or has been in that position on and off for a number of years, you are automatically defined as a not good leader. Um, You know, our challenge to the system is that is massively simplistic and actually some very, very, very good leaders 
are operating in schools um, that have significant challenges, um, either you know through uh, social demographics or um, through financial context, and we have to stop this very simplistic. Um, you know, I, I sort of I wrote a piece a while ago called "Bonfire of the Head Teachers." You know, I can I can talk about schools that I know have had. Um, you know, they've had ten head teachers in the space of ten years. Yeah. Um, and we keep making this thing that okay, well, it, it, you know, that's head teachers not solved the problem in twelve months. Therefore, they must not be a very good head teacher. They've got a very strong track record. They've had a yeah. decade of headship previously where they did a really good job, but they weren't right for this one. So we're going to get rid of them and we'll get another one. We'll throw that one on the bonfire, and then we'll get another one, and then we go through the same cycle again. And the reason why I'm, I'm making that point is because unless we challenge the narrative that schools may be in the position that they're in because of the social context and the area context, then actually we don't put the right strategic measures in place to actually address the issues of that school. We just keep making the same simplistic mistakes that, oh, well, the leader's not good enough, so we'll get another one. Even though yeah. that leader may have been very highly regarded, um, and may have done, you know, a brilliant job in previous previous positions. So, um, yeah, I think it, I think it's really important to start challenging that. Sometimes it even takes a little bit longer than a year to see that change as well, because it. I think we we forget that. Um, well, I, I don't think teachers forget, but I think people outside of teaching often forget that progress isn't linear and change isn't linear, and it's not cyclic. It doesn't happen by the time school starts in September. It, <laughs> it sometimes takes a little while for things to actually have a positive change and changing a head teacher well, after 12 months just by saying, oh, they're not good. Yeah, and I, and I think, scary. you know, that, and again, it, it perhaps comes back to, um, you know, and I'm not, I'm not against accountability and I've, I've had that conversation before because, you know, are you against accountability? No, I'm not. I think accountability is really, really important. But I think our current accountability system is overly simplistic, um, you know, and it takes the view that the way to improve what's happening in schools is to improve teaching and learning. Yeah. And I don't disagree with that. I think that's right. You know, I don't, I don't think there's a leader in the country who wouldn't say that they would want to keep investing in the quality of teaching through CPD, helping people to continue improving their practice and therefore also improving learning. Um, I think what is missing from the framework is actually and what most school leaders and indeed teachers and anybody who works in school would say is actually a key component of school improvement is actually getting the culture right in the school and that takes yes. years. You can't change so culture in nine months. Uh, you can do things that will start to change the culture but what you yeah. can't do is change the culture that quickly um, and that you know that has no place in the framework. Um, you know, there's stuff around child behaviour, there's stuff around PSHE, there's, there's, stuff, there's stuff around how we look after the children, but actually how we change the perception of a community and its children and its learners, um, that is incredibly nuanced and very, very subtle. And it's very, very difficult to come up with a tick chart for it. But we know that to achieve sustainable school improvement, we have to get the culture right around the children. And that isn't something that you can do for the whole community that's not something that you can do overnight there are examples of schools which i think are often held up as examples of schools where they have done that my argument would be is quite often they are not doing that for the whole community um, and you know that's where we get uh, situations of child off rolling or uh, the demographic intake of the school changing um, and you know, I think I think that's not system-wide improvement. That is very local competitive improvement. Um, and those schools are often held up as examples of how we can improve the culture of the school quickly. Well, actually, if we all did that, we would have thousands of children with nowhere to go. So, what advice would you give to an aspiring head teacher? <laughs> uh, so um, I'm, I'll steal Vic Goddard's line. It, um, you know, it's the best job in the world. And, you know, I despite all of the challenges of that four years, I absolutely loved being ahead. Um, and it is—it's just—it's incredibly challenging, but it's also an incredibly rewarding job. Um, I would—I suppose for somebody who is an aspiring head teacher, I would 
uh, I would give them the advice that I think they should make sure that they are really secure around their values and what their values are. Um, I would ask them to make sure that they're really clear about what their vision for education is within their school. Um, sadly, uh, one of my points of advice would be choose your school very carefully. And I don't necessarily mean off the back of the Ofsted judgments, um, but I think in terms of how that school is supported um, and, and how the role of headship in that school is supported, I think my advice would be to choose your school carefully. It shouldn't be like that, but it is. Mm. Um, but I think I think if you're if you're secure in your values and you're secure in your ethics and you're secure in your educational vision for your school, then actually the reality is you can move mountains. Um, and you know I think I think we've become obsessed in our education system around the technical aspects of leadership. You know the the MPQs are very much about the technical aspects of school leadership. Um, you know we within the Heads Up Network are very passionate about the emotional skills of school leadership, taking people with you, um, you know, being kind, looking after your community. Um, and I think what we're finding in the current context is that has been brought right into the foreground, that yeah. actually schools do so much more than we give schools credit for doing as centres of their community, supporting young people, adults, parents, staff. Um, you know, those things require the softer emotional skills, um, which I think, um, I don't think it's too far to say, I think have been sidetracked a little bit in our training and development of school leaders. Um, so yeah, that's fairly broad ranging advice. <laughs> it's important it's advice. Specific but... <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I don't think my colleagues will will mind me. We are we are a motley bunch of scarred school leaders. Uh, some of whom have, have secured other school headships and, and executive headships and other leadership roles since their experience. Um, you know, and, and some of us have got very particular and, and sometimes quite damaging experiences. Mm. Um, but not one of us would say, don't do the job. Um, because, you know, the value that it brings personally, but also the impact that you can have within the community, you know, it, it's just incredible. It's just, it is the most amazing job in the world. Um, however, we would, for the future leaders, you know, we we see uh, part of our role is to make sure that they don't fall foul of some of the things that we fell foul of. Um, but to do that, we need we need systemic change. We need we need it to change system wide. Um, and to do that, we have to change the view of of you know what what headship actually is. Mm. Um, you know, because it's it's an incredibly broad set of skills. If we, if we don't get the head's head right, then actually the chances of the rest of the organization being right, you can introduce as many different um, strategies and you know things that you're gonna do as, as you want, um, either, either globally across the country or within a local area. Actually, if we don't, if we don't get the head's head right, it will never land. Um, so although Heads Up is very much about head teachers and supporting head teachers, because I don't think that support exists, actually in doing so, we have a much better chance of getting the rest of the experience of staff who work in those schools and the children who go to those schools. We have much better experience of getting that bit right as well, or a much better opportunity to get that bit right as well. Um, you know, so I think that's, you know, that's probably also an important piece of the puzzle. That's why we're focused on head teachers, because many of us have been there, but actually we know that if we can get their heads in the right place and we can support them with coaching, uh, which we think should be, you know, an automatic right for all head teachers and paid for, um, you know, as the lead professional in the organisation, they should have. Sadly, they will merely always be the person who is less like, least likely to invest in themselves um, because money's tight and they'll invest in other people first and they'll provide for other people first. Um, you know, so our, our view is, you know, coaching should be a right for all head teachers. It should be part of contracts. Um, but, you know, with that overarching view is we have to get the heads heads right in order to be able to make the success of that school come to fruition. Mm. That does happen a lot in industry. My, um, I've got relatives who are directors of companies and they have a coaching yeah. programme, a wellbeing programme, and they're involved in quite a lot. And as teachers, yeah. 
I feel like unless your leader's involved in in that kind of work and that kind of ethos, it doesn't filter down. So it does affect everybody in your organisation. And I, I expect it will affect the children as well. If you're in a high stress environment, yeah. it's going to be passed yeah. down, isn't it? Yeah, and it's you know it's partly about the the accountability agenda has become so pervasive, you know that, that actually there's I mean I used to always used to say that I, I was surrounded by brilliant people, there were loads of people I could go and have a conversation with, um, you know I was really really fortunate to have a great network of people in in the southwest uh, where where my headship was, um, but actually the reality is that all of them held some form of accountability for me. You know, you know, either, either, but actually, I couldn't go and have a really honest conversation about how I was feeling and how the role was impacting on me with anybody, mm. because if I'd had that conversation with my chair of governance, who was brilliant, she was great, but she would have been, you know, she would have had to go and talk to somebody within the trust and say, you need to be aware of this, you know, you, and I think mm. that's the bit that's missing for heads, is there's a you have to present this uber compelling shell all of the time with no vulnerability yeah. um, and there is nobody that you can go and have that conversation with so you know many head teachers end up coming and having that conversation at home with their partner um and it, you know that's that's not the way it should be you know if we if we are invested in and we are investing in heads as as the people that we think can lead our schools and make them better places for everybody who goes there we have to then invest in them um and I think, you know, there are lots, there is lots to learn from industry and bus- the business world about how they go about doing that. I think, you know, the, the DFE, who I've had a number of conversations with over the last sort of 12 months, but, you know, they're very unclear about how that coaching support is implemented. They're very unclear mm-hmm. about the difference between coaching and mentoring, you know, and, and, and those things, you know, we need some real clarity on. A lot of, a lot of the support that's provided for heads, if it does exist, is is mentoring support and that's great you know sometimes it's good to have the guide you know the guide on the side who's walking especially the first couple of years of headship with you who's walking that path with you that you can get specific advice on and that's different to somebody that you might call up and go oh my god this has just happened and i've got no idea how to handle it um you know those are two different people uh, yeah, or they're two they different roles different it could be the same person but they could be two different people um and, and I think that's you know ultimately at the system level that's what we're that's what we're working you know we're working for um, and you know we're fortunate that lots of lots of people ask on the NAHT um, you know are engaged in and, and supporting that conversation but we've got to, we've just got to change that I mean yeah. at Ireland, in Ireland every head teacher has been given a coach that's brilliant um, has you know the, the whole the whole system. Now, our DFE would say, or oh, I have said, they haven't got the money for that. Um, you know, our, our argument is actually the money exists in the system. If we if we stopped spending so much money on pseudo accountability systems, yeah, um, then actually we could redirect some of that money into supporting head teachers. Um, you know, that would probably be a better use of some of that money. Yeah, prevention um, instead of firefighting all the time. Yeah, yeah, completely. Yeah. If you want to hear more from James or you want to get in contact with him, he's on Twitter at Pope James. And you can also find him on his website, which is Heads Up, which is part of Inspire Educate. In Pupils Causing Concern this week, we're going to listen to a story from James. Here we go. One of the things, and this is, this is from quite early in my career, but it's, it's stuck with me and I still tell the story when I, when I meet people. But uh, I remember watching... Um, uh, Little Britain for the first time um, and um, I just got a job as a head of year actually uh, I'd just become a head of year um, and the following day I had to deal with a fight between two girls um, and um, uh, I'm sure people will remember the, the character Vicky Pollard uh, yeah but no but um, and I literally had that conversation with, with a girl across the desk in my office uh, about this fight um, and she she literally used that phrase she went yeah, yeah but no but when I said can you tell me what's happened and I laughed <laughs> burst out laughing uh, she said so what are you laughing at <laughs> and I said have you seen Little Britain and she went no uh, and um, and that that's where the anecdote ends but um, it, essentially <laughs> just you know it's, it's just stuck with me and, and you know children are amazing things and very very funny but um yeah she was 
there was a very funny situation um, that happened with a you know. Few, well, she's seen it now. <laughs> almost, almost certainly. Um, um, but she, she was, you know, she was, she was really, really fantastic for all the reasons I outlined earlier on. You know, she had, she had some challenges, but she was a great, really great child. Um, but found school really difficult. Um, mm. And you know, I've always been a. I uh, always, you know, had a pastoral element to my to my roles in school. And, you know, I'm sort of a passionate defender of, of children who would be defined as being disadvantaged or from pupil premium backgrounds. Um, you know, they they have they have incredibly challenging experiences to overcome, um, and she would she was one of them. But she did she she probably you know should have been excluded, but we we stopped that from happening, and um, she managed to finish year eleven. She got all of her GCSEs, and it was a great story. Oh, that's yeah. so good. That's yeah. a good ending. Yeah. So on any other business today, we are talking about some things that are coming up on our upcoming podcast and things that are going on in our social media. So Hannah, do you want to tell us about our competition? Yep. So we are doing a bit of a competition to those who listen on Apple Podcasts. If you review our podcast, we're going to put all your names into a hat and we're going to give a goodie bag to the person who we draw out so we're going to draw that out in a couple of weeks if you are reviewing our podcast on apple Podcasts, it's really helpful because it means that other people that might be interested in our podcast can find us so we'd really really appreciate you doing that you should also check out our social media at the moment because we are sharing some of our recommendations so it's called non-contact time recommends and we're sharing all the amazing resources and platforms and things that we found during lockdown and through the course of making this podcast because we've been talking to lots of people behind the scenes and they're coming up in upcoming episodes people like the teacher development trust prime eight arc and they do these amazing things but you're not going to hear about them until later episodes so we're going to share them now because there's some things that you can access now that you might not be able to access in September because we're in this really strange time so it's a great opportunity to improve your practice or do something for your well-being or maybe learn about some coding so there's lots of resources there we're also sharing these on our Facebook page as well um, and there's all the links on the Facebook group so you can join the group you just have to tell us about your favorite episode next week's episode we're going to hear from Kirsten who's going to talk about rubrics which I found out was a really fancy name for success criteria and Kirsten's going to explain to us her favourite teacher. My primary four teacher uh, was just mad. Claire Harkin. She was mad. Loved her. She had this mad blonde curly hair and she used to wear um, like tie-dye painted Doc Martens to this Catholic primary school in the East End of Glasgow and it was just not like any other teacher and she was great and she was funny and she laughed and she was really honest about when she would get things wrong she was really fallible you know she was very human she put her hands up to everything and I think it was the first time I really thought that she looked like she was having a lot of fun with what she did and I think it's probably when I started thinking around primary four that I wanted to work in a school I wasn't sure what I wanted to do yet but I wanted you to work in the school because she looked like she was really enjoying her job. Maybe the eight, I've heard that the, the, the years in Scotland are a bit different. I think it's about eight, eight or nine. You know, to be eight's probably to be aware of the adults around you enjoying what they were doing. Yeah, I think that's probably from my takeaway from PGCE is mm-hmm. if you show that enthusiasm and that excitement for the learning, then the students definitely pick up on it and you've just explained exactly what happens to students they get inspired and they want to learn more and they want to do more I absolutely remember doing a dictionary lesson she made some <laughs> she made uh, one of the boys in the class look up a word in the dictionary we're talking we're talking about uh, uh, like gender we're talking about the sexes and she made them look up sexes in the dictionary and it was the first time I was aware of a teacher just absolutely losing it in the corner of the classroom and trying so hard not to laugh because she was just like her shoulders were shaking she had tears streaming down her face and I remember I must have been about eight when I don't understand what's so funny and she was like <laughs> do not go home and tell your parents that we were talking about sex today and then she, got, and then she lost it a little bit more and I was just like I don't understand what <laughs> like I don't understand what's happening She's lost it completely. We're all going, hmm, I wonder what's wrong with Miss Tarkin. <laughs>
And I must say, I've had so many times that I've done something like that. Now, as a teacher, I open my mouth, something comes out, and I'm like, oh my god. <laughs> do I backpedal or do I just walk on and hope nobody notices it? And there's always somebody who like winks at you from the back row. <laughs> <laughs> like, nearly got away with it. <laughs> yeah, the best kids, though, the ones that understand. Oh, I know. On... <laughs> oh absolutely. <laughs> Thanks, Kirsten. Tune in next week if you want to hear about how to apply rubrics to your lessons. And if you've got anything you'd like to suggest to us or you'd like to hear on any of our episodes, please contact us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. We're at non-contact time. And if you would prefer to email us, we are noncontacttime at gmail.com. Don't forget about our Patreon. Our subscriber packages start from £2. And for that price, you will get access to episodes early and we'll send you out some limited edition merchandise. So please make sure you head over to Patreon and check us out. Thank you for listening to us today and we look forward to talking to you guys next week. Bye, everyone. Bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 